Hello, and welcome into the Ringerverse from the Ringer. My name is Mallory Rubin. And I'm Van Latham. Mal, before we get started, does anyone want to know what the Ringerverse is? The Ringerverse is one podcast feed with multiple shows on all things superheroes, nerd culture, and fandom entertainment. Instant reactions to new releases, theory breakdowns, fun takes on the latest news, and more. Whether you're a casual fan or an obsessive like us, our shows are worthy of all your fandom needs. So head to the Ringerverse and follow the show now on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, as always, it's Andy Greenwald. Do you think the people who listen to us, yeah. when they catch you not making a joke in the intro, do sure. they think, do they think, A, this is one of those episodes where they're getting down to business because they have something they're excited about, which is sure. true in this Possibly. case. Possibly, yeah. Do they think you're losing it. Like you're not throwing a hundred mile per hour heaters anymore. This is the beginning of the decline of the Both great CR. Yeah. Uh, or do they think that the army of one liner writing freelancers that we've secretly been making <laughs> yes. use of are on my uh, bot farm of, of jokesters. <laughs> yeah. All, all the Russians who've been writing your intros to me for the last nine <laughs> years, they were recalled by Putin after Biden made his <laughs> reckless comment yesterday. So unfortunately you just got us. I am an editor at ringer.com. <laughs> Capitalist pig, Andy Greenwald. Yeah. Yeah, that's Not good. wrong. Hey, so uh, the reason why I couldn't come up with an intro is because I just don't want to say anything about Winter Soldier that would in any way like impact people's enjoyment of it. I got to see the first episode now. The first episode is going up tonight at midnight. It's a big pop culture weekend. We've got Winter Soldier, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier on Disney. We've got the Snyder Cut on HBO Max. I am participating in... One of the craziest things I've ever done, which is going to be a four hour, Oof. like pretty much live, like we will be doing it live and then putting it up. Director's commentary of the director's cut of Snyder's Justice League with Sean and Amanda on the big picture feed. So wish me well. Um, that'll be up Friday morning. But uh, Andy, before we get into the bulk of today's show, which is dedicated to Russell Davies, because it features Russell Davies, our interview with Russell Davies, the writer and creator of It's a Sin of Years and Years of Queer's Folk, of Cucumber, Doctor and, Who reboot. and the Doctor Who reboot, and just tons of stuff over in England. And the 
creator of our favorite show of the year so far. It's a sin on HBO Max. We talked to him for almost an hour. And I'm excited. I think it was a great talk. He's a lovely guy. And I yeah. do think that even if you haven't watched It's a Sin, there's a lot to be gleaned from the conversation because it's generally about TV writing. And it's one of those conversations with a TV writer where the person is so good at it that it's actually maybe not helpful because he has nothing to teach us. He's sweet, generous, and incredible. But before we get into that, Chris, and before we get into Falcon and Winter Soldier, mm -hmm. I do want to throw two things at you that just came across the old transom. Oh, okay. You know, we recorded with Russell yesterday, Wednesday, and we didn't record this intro because we were like, maybe some news will break. Sure. Maybe there'll be some TV haps and, you know, people look to us to cover it. Guess what? Some haps. Mm. And I want to run two quick casting stories by you to get your reaction. Well, one actually... One, I'm just going to comment. Your reaction is, you know, Irrelevant. I'll take it, but it's not why I'm doing it. Okay. One is there was a casting announcement about one of Taylor Sheridan's upcoming Paramount Plus shows. How did I not get this story? Did this literally just get released? I think so. Okay. And it's the one starring the former mascot of this podcast, Jeremy Renner. It is called the show. The member of the show is called Mayor of Kingstown. I'm and fully I was aware. Yeah. I was on the fence. The fence surrounding Taylor Sheridan's multi-acreage horse farm that he has now purchased with his Paramount money. They made a casting announcement to the show, and they cast the my version of Taylor Sheridan, Jeremy Renner in this program, Diane Weist. <laughs> <laughs> Weist side story, baby. I love Are Diane Weistie. I didn't know that. I am a classic Weistie. Yes. Weast of Eden. That's where I live. I'm truly thrilled about this. Which is I don't East Weast? That's terrible. Is it? No, that's that's terrible? I don't want to be your Weast of Burden. Listen, I, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about Steven Soderbergh's boat movie with Meryl Streep. Maybe we should have. I don't know. Yes, we did. Let them all let talk. Let them all talk. We talked about We didn't about spend that, didn't like we? hours on it. This, okay. It, it is a rich text. It's no Snyder Cut. Yeah. The the Snyder Cut of Let Them All Talk would be incredible. But, right, so if it was the Snyder Cut, Diane Weist is the mother box. You know what I mean? Like, she's so good in that movie. I'm very excited about this. I news. think you so, could make an argument that Meryl Streep, Candace Bergen, and Diane Weist are the mother boxes. Oh, my God. Yes. Right? They are the three incredible otherworldly creations that unlock everything for us. I yes. completely agree. The other news that was that that just came out is that Jeremy Renner before he was Jeremy Renner. Taylor Sheridan before he was Taylor Sheridan for you, Chris. Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, the Time to Kill is, for sequel. Is attached to star in an HBO series follow-up to A Time to Kill, right, called A Time for Mercy. Yes. How yeah. do you feel about this? It's a nice bookend, I guess, title-wise. Uh, it is based on a John Grisham novel. I didn't know that there was a Jake Briggins sequel. Have you done much Grisham reading in your life? No. No, I think Never I skipped did. that part of American history when uh, when people were reading those books. Like, I mm -hmm. think I read The Firm maybe on like a vacation somewhere when I was younger, but I'm a huge fan of those movies uh, just as, as entertainments. Um, and I'm also like pretty bullish on like, just like, let's get some courtroom dramas going. I love totally. a courtroom drama. Uh, that was a, um, one of the reasons why I liked Perry Mason so much was the way in which it was just like, let's bring back some old fashioned tropes of, of, you know, a private investigator. And then they got to like basically backdoor in the, the rise of Perry Mason as a litigator. It is, uh, I, I think we're going to see increasingly putting a new coat of paint on the old house. 
And that also kind of reminds me of another thing I wanted to mention to you, which mm. was this Natasha Leone Ryan Johnson show that's going to be on Peacock. And I only just bring it up because the, Ryan Johnson was talking about it being like, I really love Mystery of the Weeks, and that's what this is going to be. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've talked before about one of the responses, one, one of the things that's emerged with the rise of streaming is that it's not just everybody's watching new stuff. What they're really watching is the library stuff. And mm -hmm. one of the things that the libraries have reminded people is that they really like TV the way it used to be. They still like it, you know, which which doesn't necessarily... I don't mean that to sound as as regressive as it as it might sound. I think that there are a large number of people who subscribe to the HBO Max service, for example, who enjoyed going on the journey with I May Destroy You, for example, but also in their continue watching queue are episodes of Friends. Yep. Like that's the that's what TV is. It's it's all of it. And, you know, Peacock has, in addition to new programming, it has and recent USA hit shows like Briar Patch, <clears throat> it has you know, Columbo and Murder, you, She Wrote. And, you can pat your back. It's okay. And people and people are watching it. Just, just like to remind people. Speaking, by the way, quick sidebar. You know, we are nothing if not attentive to our own mistakes here. I was talking up Mr. Mayor last week or on Monday, mm -hmm. a show I really enjoy. Had no idea it was donezo for the season because of COVID. Did not what? know that. Is it? They didn't finish. They only made nine. And then they were like, we're good because they were trying to film in the teeth of the winter surge here in LA. Oh my gosh. I didn't know so, that. My assumption I was is that why the there hadn't been any new new episodes recently. I, I got called out on that by the Facebook group. First of all, thank you. Yes. I, I among other things I learned on Facebook is that uh, uh, vaccines make your hair fall out, um, <laughs> and that Joe Biden is not actually president. But <laughs> of those three pieces of information, the one that was actionable uh -huh. was Mr. Mayor had its season shortened. So anyway. So you, to the Ryan you Johnson. log on to Facebook, you start taking notes. You're like, Joe Biden yeah. is acting against a green screen. Green screen, yeah. Yeah, and Mr. Mayor is over. Yeah, and then I was like, which which is more important to my day right now as right. one half of America's Andy, find, find you a podcast, podcast, you can do both. Yeah. Uh, so, but anyway, your point being, it, it's, it's pretty interesting to see the, the two things I want to say about this are, so all the things you used to love, let me quote Twin Peaks, that gum you like is going to come back in style. So we're going to get these glossier versions of things we used to love. In some cases, we're going to get literally the thing we used to love, like Frasier back. Okay, Frasier's back. But to your point, Chris, like everybody used to love um, Perry Mason or Matlock and all that stuff. So we'll do it again, but we'll do it glossy with the imprimatur of class. We'll connect it to a, a cinematic franchise and we'll get mm -hmm. Matthew McConaughey because he's willing to do Dorito commercials so he's uh, he's up for it and there's a hole in the schedule after the Pizzolatto show fell apart of FX one question though for you and this might be something for a future podcast to talk about is the rise of serialized prestige dramas over the last 20 years a lot of people pointed to that looked at that and said well that's because the bottom fell out of the middle movie market yes, like these right. all like used to all be movies of, all of the the sort of mid-tier dramas, mid-budget dramas got converted into, well, what if I just made a series out of this? I think it's worth suggesting that everything has fallen out of the movie market now. Mm -hmm. Courtroom dramas, um, comedies, full mm -hmm. stop, right? Um, detective stories or whatever. Like, it's not just that these used to be TV shows. Non-franchise sci-fi. Basically, yeah, that's it. So it's all series now. And and we're going to see more and more and more of that. You know, one example might be the like Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd 
making something together, you'd be like, oh, that's probably a, a Adam McKay related romp mm-hmm. in the theaters. Nope. It's based on a podcast and it's coming to Apple TV plus. So it's part of the larger shift. But as someone who enjoys that kind of entertainment, this is good. I want to see new versions of detective shows and courtroom dramas and et cetera, et cetera. I'm glad you're saying all this because I do want to just bring up Falcon and Winter Soldier before we get into our interview mm-hmm. with Russell. And if you haven't seen It's a Sin, it, it's pretty much essential that you do as a television watcher. But I would also say that we talk a lot about the things that happen throughout the series. So you will probably want to watch that before you listen. However, if you have watched it or it's been a while or you haven't decided yet and you just want to hear Russell talk, I recommend that too because Russell is kind of a genius about making television and a very unique one. Some of the things that he told me and Andy about his writing process and and the production process of his shows was, I think, pretty singular. I don't think I've ever heard a showrunner talk like that. So it's a fascinating conversation. Briefly, just on Falcon Winter Soldier, because it was funny. When we first got on the line with Russell, I think I was partially expecting him start talking about like Shakespeare or something and immediately start talking about WandaVision. Yeah. So I hope we let's use all that, right? Because we kind of just turned on the mics and he immediately wanted to talk about WandaVision. And I feel like that was interesting. So going into Falcon and Winter Soldier, I was looking at some of the early reviews and the adjectives, the descriptors you're seeing are like sturdy, reliable, And I'm very curious to see how that winds up. That's what you say about me on Slack. (laughs) Never. I'm I'm very curious to see how that winds up impacting people's preconceived notions and how they enjoy or don't enjoy this series. Because when we were coming into WandaVision, we were seeing weird and Lynchian and uh, big swing and all those things. And I think that that wound up impacting maybe how we went into it. You know, Mm because these are two characters, Wanda and Vision were not two characters that I had much of a feel for throughout the, just the movies. Um, I think just in terms of time spent, I kind of have a grasp on Bucky and Sam a little bit more, you know, and I'm kind of interested in them trying to make this hybrid global political espionage thriller alongside a buddy like comedy, which is what it's definitely scanning as. The big thing that I would say to you, though, is as Wanda Vision was essentially the entire conceit of the show was that it was a show. It was a show within a show and that it was a very much about the tropes and history of television. Uh, I will say that Falcon and Winter Soldier is not that. Falcon and Winter Soldier feels much more like the original sort of promise slash gambit of these Marvel shows, which is like, what if we made a five-hour movie and released it one a week? And I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously, because there had been initially some conversation or some talk of the Snyder cut being four one hour episodes of Mm. the entire justice league. Um, I think that this is probably Falcon winter soldier is closer to that. This first episode, which is the only one I've seen, which people will see really does feel like an elongated first 25 minutes of a movie um, with like more character beats and more. Well, I mean, we'll see. Right. But like we watched, I think that part of my sort of like, I'm trying to feel around the dark here for exactly what I mean. But like, I, I thought WandaVision had a little bit of stop startiness to it. You know, like there was there was a little bit of like, okay, now we're going to reestablish all of the like mm-hmm. 70s bits or the 80s bits or the 90s bits. And then once you got into the second half of the season, I think I kind of longed for that <laughs> once we got into the, mm-hmm. the Marvel movie part of the season. Mm-hmm. That being said, I just thought I would throw that out there. It's been interesting to read the kind of rhetoric around FAWS, if I, if I can just shorten it. 
than Falls. against uh, against WandaVision. Yeah, I, I I I haven't seen the episode yet, so obviously I'm not commenting on that. But two things: one, it's kind of impossible to comment on any of this, as everyone knows who listens to this podcast, without taking the ten thousand foot macro view and thinking about it, the machinations coming from Kevin Feige's executive suite office. The plan that he had made a lot of sense mm-hmm. and made a ton of sense to the Bobs, Chapek, Iger, potentially Bakish, if he was just listening in. Two, two of the three Bobs approved of, this, of yeah. this plan. Yeah. The third one was shook, which was... <laughs> the third one was like, I just got to give Taylor Sheridan a billion dollars to <laughs> yeah, get straight weasty with it. <laughs> the, he's a weasty boy like us. I think that... I think that Bob Bakish refers to Taylor Sheridan during the long Montana winters as his winter soldier. I, I guarantee you that's true. The plan was we are going to handhold the MCU audience from the types of films and storytelling they're expecting to this new medium. And the way to do that is with an action movie. And then we will dazzle people with a left turn. Once we've won them over and gotten them used to watching superhero stories on the small screen, we will. Surprise them. And then mm-hmm. midway through that surprise, we will hug them again. We'll stop hitting them and we'll hug them and it'll turn into that same sort of thing. And that will help recalibrate people, not just for the size of the box they're watching it on, but also the types of stories that that box can contain. That's a great plan. That makes a lot of sense. It didn't work out that way because the pandemic, the show's flip-flopped. People know this. I don't know if even in his wildest Agatha Harkness-influenced magical imaginings, if Feige could have predicted it would have gone this well in the reversed, in the reverse way. Because the second point I wanted to make that hangs over all of this is people are just fucking watching Marvel stuff. Doesn't matter. The yes. vast majority of people who watched WandaVision and watched Falcon and the Winter Soldier are not obsessed with the metadata. They are not obsessed with the story behind the story. They're not obsessed with the name Kevin Feige or even listening to us. It's more cool stuff that they like, and, and God bless them. But winning the plugged in extremely online culture narrative had to have been a giant shock and a, and a boon. And they won it with a show like WandaVision, which took some zigged when it maybe was going to zag and centered its story in a, in a female character, which is not still not common in this sort of stuff and fainted towards issues of grief and emotional responsibility in ways that were uh, interesting at times and successful at others and not always both, in my opinion. Um, but that really worked out. I think on potentially, and I think I could say this because I haven't seen the episodes, the potential loser of this flip-flop is Falcon and the Winter Soldier because it is now going to be received and covered by a, uh, again, extremely online viewership and mm-hmm. blogosphere that has gone all the way out on the ledge to say, this is emotional art now. This is really interesting and surprising and important. Should Falcon and Winter Soldier be judged on that? I'm not sure. Is it going to meet those standards? Let's be honest, probably not. Mm -hmm. But the main point here is Feige and Marvel stay winning, even if it seems like they're going to catch a lowercase L for the next six weeks from the people who you listen to. I I can't wait to talk about this with you on Monday because it's. I I don't necessarily going to. I think you're going to come out of it with your mind crazily changed. Like I think you'll probably be like, interesting. Okay, I see. But I, I think that w- there's a lot to discuss in terms of how people are choosing to tell these stories over the course of several weeks and whether or not you're making, you're putting all your hits up top and you're, you're, you're putting all these sort of tricks and 
and uh, blind left turns into episodes to make them the most kind of conversational uh, hot topics every week or whether it's like, look, we just asked somebody to, we asked Malcolm Spellman to write a five hour Falcon and Winter Soldier movie. And this is how we've divided it up. And we know how to make a cliffhanger at the end, uh, end of every 50 minutes to extend it. Quick question. Are there multiple scenes of Sam Wilson reacting to something and then in an instant, because of what he's just reacted to, soaring into the sky because his wings have flown out and then he's flying really quickly and he does something that's kind of visually unintelligible and then he lands again? No, the thing I'm going to want to discuss, probably spend like 45 minutes discussing on Monday is the just, I think there's a criminal absence of logos on people's clothing in this show. And mm. it is a, like a running problem within the MCU of people wearing yeah, logo-less hats, logo-less t-shirts, it's just like the, the, whatever the store is, I feel like it's definitely a, like we cut out the middleman clothing company that advertises on podcasts. And if they would like to, the watch is always open for business. But who dresses these guys is like my fascination. And it's like it kind of ha- like Bucky mm-hmm. kind of wears like a motorcycle jacket and like he has like a vibe to him. But like Sam and Bucky definitely wear like the most generic men's clothing in in television or movie history. It's kind of incredible because I remember like 20 years ago when they were making the X-Men movie, what a lot of people were fixated on was how are they going to get people to buy tickets for this movie when everyone's when Wolverine is wearing yellow spandex? Like how are they going to recreate the beloved comic book aesthetic in real life and on the screen? And what and what they did and I think worked pretty well is you know they they didn't do it. They didn't have the costumes. They right. had like leather basically. Like it was a much more monochrome and they didn't really steer into the the more colorful aspects of comic books that I think people were afraid of. What's interesting about now is that they found a way to make the costumes work on screen and pop and they use a very interesting like kind of muted color palette and they they obviously think about what it's going to look like for Spider-Man to stand next to Hawkeye or whatever so it's not too clashy or matchy-matchy. But one thing that they have absolutely done verbatim from the comic books is characters like Winter Soldier or U.S. Agent or Sam Wilson for 30 years basically dressed like Joe Camel. You know what I mean? Like they they all are wearing like American blue jeans and also a leather jacket with buttons? Yeah. Question mark? Like, and then they put on their costumes and then everyone's like, oh, that's Falcon and Captain America. But that's the aesthetic that they have brought to the MCU and I respect it. It is actually canon in the comic books that these people dress like Soviet agents in an 80s comedy trying the, to pose as your neighbor. It's the outfit that I give my FIFA Build-A-Manager character <laughs> when I'm like, Chris <laughs> Ryan will be taking over Liverpool now and it's just like, sort of like stubble, but hair and also lips. For If it's Chris Ryan, I hope it's robust mustache. That's <laughs> how you recognize yourself in-game action. You have to ask that? Um Andy, this has uh, been fun. Let's get into our fantastic interview with Russell Davies. We thank him so much for being so generous with his time. Please, if you haven't already, check out It's a Sin. We'll be back on Monday to do Falcon and Winter Soldier and a bunch of other stuff. And just for everybody out there, I don't know if you've noticed, we've launched a new feed called The Ringerverse on The Ringer. And that's got a bunch of folks doing a bunch of different shows on like one feed the same way we do our NBA feed. So uh, Van and Charles are going to be responding to Falcon and Winter Soldier pretty regularly on Fridays. And Mal is going to be doing some stuff. So it's just really, uh, if you are like, I want to dive deep and deep and deeper and not hear uh, about people talk about FIFA creative managers. I mean, you can do both. Obviously, I hope you do. But we have a lot of stuff out there for folks to check out. So please hit follow on Ringerverse 
on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I got nothing to add. That seems like a great plan. But now they should pause, watch it to sin on HBO Max, unpause, and listen to the great <laughs> Russell T. Davies just, just going off, holding forth. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was really uh, quite something that this show is just really moving to me and Andy, and I think we were just blown away by it. And 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 not only we, you know obviously the story, but also a lot of the mechanics of how you told the story, which yeah. is what we would love to talk to you about. Yeah, that's what I loved was like you, yes, it was like proper. Oh, can we just talk about one division? <laughs> sure. Yes, although it's dangerous. It's very, it's very for good us. for our ratings. <laughs> I was literally just pitching another show just 20 minutes ago that's, that's about the history of television. Uh, it's, you know, it's slightly involved in the history of television. And the commissioner went, oh, well, I've never heard of that. And I went, that doesn't matter. One division. <laughs> find me. I was, you know, find me an 18-year-old who's heard, of, who's heard of Lucille Ball. And it's all in there. It's like you can now use one division in any, <laughs> anything name. That's fast. Do you think, because we, we talked about this when we discussed one division, we've seen the Dick Van Dyke show. It was not on when we were children, but we are of a generation where at least that was still in the culture and it was on reruns. And so we were familiar with that. But you have to imagine the majority of people who watch that show, what were they getting from those early episodes? What were the signifiers, the shape of it, the rhythm? Isn't it fascinating? It's a new look. Young, you're young. I mean, but... But if you saw... That's the Los Angeles filter we have. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had that. But it's funny, because actually, that brings me back to it's a sin, because the thing we worried about... um, a big thing we worried about, a lot about on that, was saying, um, was saying, look, now HIV doesn't kill you. It's a completely different world. There are different medications, because you know, it's all set in the 80s. There's no way any character could have turned to the camera and said, it's okay now, don't worry. And we worried about this a lot, you know, whether I argued for a long time there should be documentaries afterwards and backup material and, 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 st- and stuff like that. But it turns out there's your backup material. We've all yeah. got a great big search engine in our hands now, and we all go and find that out. So I, I suspect... It's a funny parallel between it's a sin and one division. <laughs> but yeah. I think if you're wondering what that is now, we don't sit there passively anymore going, oh, I don't get this. We're all like, click, 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 during it, during transmission. Yeah. Okay, so this is fascinating. This is actually a way into the poorly shaped opening question that I had that maybe I can now kind of <laughs> retrofit on the fly to suit what you were saying, which was 
<laughs> in some ways, this was a trite observation, but I kind of wanted to begin there, which was one of the things that was most moving, I think, to both of us um, about watching It's a Sin was that it was so profoundly from the start about life, that the liveliness, the energy, the enthusiasm, the beauty of these young boys when we meet them is so uh, contagious, you know, which is a poor <laughs> word to choose, I guess, but it, it's, it's really uplifting and inspiring, which maybe is a little bit counterintuitive when you're making a show that is, at least in its logline, about a plague, about a deadly, deadly virus. And I, I wanted to jump into this generally wondering how and when you came to that realization, how what that meant for you as a creator. But it's interesting in the light of what you were saying that maybe you didn't have to do the thing that heavy biographical stories need to used to need to do, which was, you know, tell mm. us what's going to be wrong here because now we have... <laughs> Yes. We can all research it. We can it's all. Kind of, it was it, all those problems are inherently there. I kind of love problems. I, can, I mean, I sit at this desk all day. And so, um, I, well, I can't imagine writing something without a problem. Um, there, there are always problems. And it's my job to sit here and tackle them all, whether they're simple ones about casting or whether they're because it's raining or we can't afford this building on the schedule or the budget yeah. or whether it's profound, as in what are you doing? Why are you saying this? How are you going to say it? And in some ways, it wasn't a problem because this is kind of how I approach everything. It's it's like it, it simply wouldn't be like me to write a dark, dour, pessimistic piece um, it, 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 or, or even on a light level, it's simply an elegy. Um, that's just not how I write. It's, it's how I'm not, if I'm writing... You know, spaceships and monsters in Doctor Who. If I'm writing gay men back in 1999 in Queer as Folk, it's just I'm just I just put life into things. It's just it's just what I do. And um, and so coming to this and coming to this, there was it's hard to work out. I've done so many interviews about it now. You make up so much in hindsight, and you make up that during the whole production process when people are going, "Why did you write this?" And I <laughs> I don't know. I just <laughs> did. Um, and so I come up with all sorts of reasons that may not have been there at the time. But actually. But it just comes back to your memory, in the, to my memory in the end. When I remember the people I knew who died, they were hilarious. They were hilarious. And as a rule, a lot of the people I knew died were actors. And I know people from all walks of life died. I know also that women died and children died from, you know, but for the sake of the lens of this discussion and the lens, the prism this series is seen through, let's, we're talking about the gay male experience. And um, that that life was simply true. It was simply how I saw that those, those people who were actors were hilarious and, and big gay actors in West End shows. I mean, they're going to be hilarious naturally, aren't they? So um, I was writing about that because those deaths were awful. Those deaths were so cruel and so unfair. And still, that doesn't fade. It's a nasty virus. It really, the way it's a shape-shifting little bugger and it can do anything to you, take any form. And just when you're physically collapsing, oh, it can invade the brain. Oh, and then it can make you blind. I mean, it's really nasty. And so um, faced with that, I have to. I simply have to. I'm not... And and the, the remarkable thing about it in this country, it's the only way it broke through in this country was that it was seen by a huge straight audience. Well, you kind of think a gay audience is going to come to this naturally as with a lot of stuff I've written over the years. And this is the first one where it's really, truly felt like a crossover and felt like everyone's watching it. And so, but, I, but, but I've always felt it's my job to get everyone to watch it. And that's why 
I, I take your point about putting life into it, but there were moments where I'm tap dancing. I mean, I'm putting Daleks in there, Doctor Who. And, you know, I, had to, I wrote a West End musical. Yeah, it was a, a whole musical section, we, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was going to ask about those things in particular, and they made it feel like these were tributes to people that you knew and life that you knew. There's there's a feeling that is like, let's put on a show that is so yes. welcome and hilarious when you have those little... <laughs> yeah. You I put mean, so are. much time and effort into them. I know, and money. It's like, you know, that, that <laughs> whole West End musical thing. I mean, literally the day they phoned up and said, we did, that was supposed to be Les Miserables and we couldn't get the rights yeah. simply, because, simply because it was too expensive. That was, Chris was asking. It, it almost oh, yeah, seems yeah, yeah. more fun to do oh, a no. fake version I was of delighted. Les Mis, though. Yeah. And they said, you can't have Les Mis. I was like, oh, brilliant. Let me do something called the French Revolution. I mean, it was so the weird thing funny. is, every, everyone thinks Les Mis is about the French Revolution anyway. <laughs> you often have to sit there with Les Mis going, no, it's like a hundred years later. That's a different barricade. And they say, they just keep on doing it in France <laughs> stop having revolutions over there so um, so that was an enormous joy and like that there's that afternoon soap the evening soap opera the chimney yes. sweep which we all shot on videotape we got all the right cameras and stuff like that I mean I kind of knew I knew a production team would love doing that and I knew but but also it's we're not daft it's like if you say the Daleks are in an episode if there's a, there's a Doctor Who montage That'll be online. That'll be everywhere. It was. It got a month ahead of transmission. It was in all the science fiction magazines. And that's an audience we wouldn't necessarily reach. And I say magazines, I mean online as well and everywhere. And so, you know, I just thought it's my job to kind of haul this out in a way. Just to say, come and watch, come and watch, come and watch. There's stuff in here for everyone. I'm going to cede the floor to Chris, of course, but this gets at what we found so fascinating about the show. And on, on top of being so moved by it, and it's really fueled our desire to talk to you, which is that you seem to be thinking about everything uh, that you do on two levels, on the writer level and the producer level. You know, that this was oh. creatively fulfilling and meaningful, but also there's another piece of this. And I think when that you have those things working in harmony, you get truly great work like this. Oh, oh thank you. Uh, I think they're all a writer level, though. I know what you mean. I can see what you mean now. And um, actually, I think on a producer level, you'd stop yourself. I think on a producer level, you go, you're not well, going to do a West End musical. <laughs> on, a, on a line producer level, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the exactly. producer would say, can't Jill just walk in the door and say, I just got done with my West End musical and boy, are my arms tired, you know? Like, as, she, as she throws that. She, she doffs, anyway, I'm sure. Exactly, takes a mob cap off. The producer part of me knows how much the Daleks cost. Sure. <laughs> you don't put them you, in lightly. I, I feel like you, you have some produce, you have like, cr- like enough credit in the bank to use the Daleks when you want to though, right? Oh, don't get them free. Nothing's <laughs> free. It's like, oh my God, they see you coming. It's like, yeah, nothing is ever for free. It's like... <laughs> I wanted to ask along these same lines and, and much in, in what you're talking about with these, the idea of it being a celebration of life, but in so much as the way the story is told, I think is what grabbed me, especially in the initial episodes, is the momentum with which the story is told, the propulsion of the plot. And I think with a story like this, there would be an option to, let's make this very, very, the camera is going to be still. The framing is going to be very like, everything is going to be Pietas and everything is going to be just like (laughs) these sort of like Christ figures. This is a, a rollicking story in the way it's told too and i was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about working with the director and saying and the editors too and saying like this is the pace i want to move at even though we're dealing with such heavy material yeah 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 i mean just one director one editor sarah bruton yeah. Bruch, did the entire thing uh peter hall director and um and well you simply do um i think to be honest when you come onto one of my shows you kind of know it's going to be fast i just don't write slow 
and and I can and I can write scenes that are twenty pages long if we need them. Some scenes are very long in in this. It's it's like my scene count is literally double the normal amount of scene counts. It's funny they just don't feel fast to me. I just think we're very literate. We're very good viewers. We get stuff. I'm in this kind of. I've been in a funny mode for a few years. So I've been telling dramas that take place over many years quite by chance i did the the jeremy thorpe thing of a very a very english scandal which i think is on amazon over yeah. there that covers 20 years then i did a series last year called years and years uh which takes place over 15 years and so this one is 10 years eventually i'll get down to one day it's <laughs> <laughs> get to be in 2030 and it'll be going out live <laughs> last for one hour <laughs> and um it'll just be on tiktok yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly i'll bring back vimeo and um, so I've kind of, it's just by chance. It's literally by chance that those things of uh, those three projects have come along at once. So I've learned a lot of tricks, but it's also the trick that it teaches you is, is a fundamental trick anyway of, of, and I, and I think I'm good at this, to be honest. I think it's why I've made a good career. It's of choosing the right moment yes. in someone's life. For example, you know, like scene one is Richie leaving home the night before you leave home to go to university and which seemed, you know, if I was, I've, I've said this to someone before, but I kind of feel like I'm a drone, you know, I've got that drone shot, that God's eye point of view and you go along someone's life and you just grab that moment. It's like there, it's like there, that's the one. And you know, it's, you have to consider there's a lot of choices for that moment. It could have started with him arriving at university with mum mm-hmm. and dad dropping him off. It could, you know, it could have been a day later. It could be a month earlier of like, oh, he gets his, in this country, you pass your A-levels that gets into university. So A-levels are, hooray, I'm going to university. And, you know, and give him a little boyfriend with whom, not you know, one of the, not a boyfriend, but one of those boys from school who he has little kisses with behind the bike sheds. Um, you know, you could have done that. There's a million options there. And all of those work. They're all very good. But if I have a skill, I think it's in choosing the right moment. And I just, like, the night before going away to university. What I love about that is that he's the centre of his world then, in that moment. And that's the boy who stays the centre of his own world. He's too much of a star, even to himself. That's one of his problems, is that he's the little prince, he's the king, he's the he's the golden child in, in many ways. And there's, there's nothing more golden than that night before you leave home, mm-hmm. which your dad is sitting there resenting and undercutting him. That says a lot about the dad. Mm-hmm. The mum is is kind of moving on. You know, mum and dad, she's talking about redecorating his room, which then shows you that he's got gay porn magazines hidden away the sisters huffing away that's just a, it's a perfect moment it's it and that's what every script is really you, it's that you're you're choosing the perfect moment of that will give away the most about an audience and load them with as much potential i mean he feels full of potential in that moment he feels like his life is beginning so so do we Mm-hmm. It's like there, there we are. We're in it. That's why getting the results of the exams doesn't quite work. Missing that moment doesn't quite work. So um, I can't even remember what your question was. Why did we end up going down this route? Who no, are this you? Is... What am I doing here? Let me go. <laughs> is it... Your camera's on for some reason. No, but the, the, what? The, this is. I, I love hearing you talk about this because I think it's something that is not well understood about the challenges of filmmaking. Which is, if you're writing a novel, for example, you can tell all the moments, and it can be as long as you as you like. When you are writing a script or making a, a TV show or a movie, that selection process is everything. You choose the frame. You choose the fence you want to put around the endless pastures of story. And that's the thing that was so dazzling to me about 
especially the pilot episode, it, the audacity of it. I mean, it, it goes so quickly. And all of a sudden, within 16 minutes, we know five people and we love them. Everything, and yes, yes. It's, do, you, do you credit that your ability to find those moments with the with experience? Is that something that you've always been drawn to? Or does it go through your mind the way you just sort of spoke, talked it out through us? Like, well, it could be this, it could be that. No, it is experience. But to be absolutely honest, I very much, um, when I was a young writer in, my, in the 90s and really starting, and I was very much mentored by a brilliant man called Paul Abbott who invented Seamus. You yeah. still get Seamus over there. He invented Seamus, the British show first. And um, uh, we both worked together and I love him and he's, he's a genius. He's an absolute genius of a man. And to be honest, he said that about me. He sort of said, actually, very early on in the mid-90s, he sort of said, do you know there's like 20 versions for every single scene and you go straight to the version that works? I don't know. I mean, people who hate my stuff would say, you don't go to the person that works. Um, but um, I don't care about them because they're not paying me. So, um, but so, um, yeah, if, if actually I have, um, I do go through what you were saying then, Andy, of you could do this, you could do that, you could do this, you could start here. But I do it in about half a second, to be honest. Mm. It's like, it's, it's kind of instant. And I trust my instincts to stick. I don't really doubt it. I, I say I trust my instincts to stick with it. That imagine that imagines that I sit here doubting it, going, oh, have I made the right choice? That, to be absolutely honest, I don't. That doesn't mean I've always made the right choices within that scene. It could be pushed mm. further, more of the dad, less of the dad, blah, blah, blah. Should the sister be bigger? Or whatever, you know, is rich, whatever. There's always fine-tuning to be done, but I really trust my instincts to lead me to the right choice, to be honest. Gosh, it's going to be very hard to have this discussion without sounding arrogant, isn't it? But tough shit, actually, sometimes. But sometimes <laughs> it's an arrogant job. I've got to write something. It is an arrogant job. I've got to write something yeah. that, that convince people to go and spend a million pounds on it. So, um, And then I've got to sit with the director and sit with the editor. Then I've got to sit through the edit. So there is an arrogance to it. And you do have to be able to defend your own work. And Well, you have to be, not defend it. That makes it sound combative and it's, often, it's much more collegiate than that. But you have to believe in it. Have to believe that's the right scene, and then so then all the discussion goes into, you know, the discussions about that scene. Is is that house too brown? Is it too brown? Have we chosen the right house? I was there's a they've got a they've got their dining table in one room and they've got a second dining table in the kitchen. I always find that slightly confusing in the house. Did we get that right? You know, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's a million conversations. What's she wearing? Does she look too mumsy? Is she not mumsy enough? You know, once you haven't solved all your problems, once you've found this scene, your problems are just beginning. Right. But as a rule, that thing is like, I'm kind of only just, I don't know how to describe this. I'm kind of only just beginning to realize in life. And I mean, over the past year, that um, the past two years that, this sorting and filtering of dialogue in my head is is literally constant. It's like 24 hours a day. I thought everyone was like this, and I'm just beginning to realise that people aren't. I honestly thought everyone was like this. It's like <laughs> there was never a moment where there wasn't a scene and completely invented people don't stop popping up in my head. I thought of something just 10 minutes ago, and this bunch of old college friends, one of whom was... I just thought of a line and the line instantly belonged to someone who was more snobbish than the others. So there were these college friends all sitting around a table. like They all met up after a while. They hadn't seen each other for 10 years. And then one of them is a bit more rich and a bit more arrogant than the others. And they start to bring him. Anyway, that, that doesn't even belong to a drama or anything. But that's what my, my mind just went to an interesting scene like that of... Does everyone do that? Is that not normal? Is that, is it like, am I here for therapy? Help me. <laughs> no, but you know, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think people think in different ways. Some people, I think, I remember there was a long stretch of my life. Maybe it still happens, although I, I don't really even notice it anymore. But sometimes I'll be walking around and I will think about how 
what I'm seeing or what I'm doing would look as a shot. You know, like, because I think yeah. growing up watching films and growing up watching, especially films, but TV too, you just start to think cinematically, even though you're just looking at the world itself. I used to think yes. this way all the time in New York. I would walk into a bar in New York and I would say, uh, I feel like I am walking into a bar in Goodfellas, even if I was just going to meet Andy <laughs> or something like that for a beer. But if there was music playing, you would think about it in these almost cinematic terms. Yeah, that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing. But I, I'm, I'm doing that with dialogue and with completely invented people. I don't even yeah. know who they are, but they just pile into my head and see there they are. I, I, I just wait for something embarrassing to happen and then I look towards the imaginary camera in the audience because I want <laughs> them to know I'm in on it and it's not my fault. <laughs> no, that's actually there. Imagine if that was that's, actually there. <laughs> see, that's the beginning of a film. That's the beginning of a good pitch. <laughs> Without question. Uh, <laughs> One more thing about just the pace and momentum of it that that, that struck us, and, I, and it might be a way to sort of transition the conversation a little bit also to the differences between US and UK TV, which, you know, we're watching more UK TV. I think that it's more of a global yeah. industry now. Mm -hmm. But that said, one of the things that struck us, and maybe you heard us say this on the podcast, was the American version of It's a Sin, every episode is a season. I mean, right from the start. This is a five, oh. six-year project, you know? Yes. And we're watching this and we're like, my God. God, he's efficient, but also why did we need all that flab? You know, there's yeah. something that is so confident in the way that you're telling us the story. And, and it probably begins with your confidence in the scenes that you're choosing. You never feel shortchanged while watching It's a Sin. We never feel, as, as much as we love spending time with these people, I don't feel moments where I wish the camera lingered longer in that room and we could spend another yes. 20 minutes there. Like we're, you're telling well, us what we need to hear. That is interesting. I mean, there were notes like that from Channel 4 as we went along saying, can we get to know them? Can we get to know Richie a bit more? I said, it's because it's very interesting. It's an interesting drama in that sense is that it's about HIV. It's about the virus. And because I, I would get notes sort of saying, can we slow it down? Can we get to know Richie? Can we understand what he wants in life? And actually I used to sit there going, there's no great secret to him. There's nothing you do. You know everything. Yeah. Yes. I think he's a layered character. I think he has depths, but all the depths are there. All the depths are perfectly visible. He's not hiding any secrets. He doesn't. He just. He changes slightly. He changes enormously as he as he gets ill. And so, but it's like I don't. I used to sit there. I used to get this note. and sit there going, I don't know what. And I can write dialogue for anyone. I could sit anyone down for twenty pages and have them talk to each other. But I, said, I don't know what you want to discover because I think it's there. I think it's visible. I don't. I think I see those notes disappeared once we started shooting it, and we cut, and it was well cast. So all that. Life and fullness, and was was visible yes. in, in the actors. I think. Um, well, I think that I think there's a difference too to, to articulate, which is I would have happily spent an hour with Neil Patrick Harris's character and yes. and his his partner because their house is so wonderful and they're so welcoming and they're so richly drawn. But I understand why we didn't because the the brief amount of time we spent with them makes it all the more devastating. Yeah. The, the the scene with Richie when he returns home leading to that beautiful ballet move in the headlights. Oh, bless you could have that scene or versions of that scene, that struggle, that agony that he's experiencing. You could do six or seven of them and they would be meaningful, I but know. they wouldn't be as devastating. You know, so I, it, again, it's that choosing. Thank you. You're so kind. You're so kind. And I, I, I want to say thank you. And you're so kind after every sentence you say. <laughs> and it is straight because it's like when, when this was commissioned, when the head of Channel 4 picked this up, um, and he did literally the head of the channel on one of his first days. But what's this? And um, one of those bits of chance that he had to read it. And he saw it as like, oh, this could run for five years. And, you know, we could do like 81, 82, 83, 84. Mm -hmm. and, and I was wondering, oh, no, no, sorry. It's just five or six episodes. And um, I just didn't. 
I don't know. I think I'm. I think I'm on a lifelong reaction to Doctor Who. It's the only time I've ever done a, a long-running show, <laughs> right. and and actually Doctor Who's different every week. So that's that. Even that doesn't count in the same way. I just think. I just. I think I'm really. I think I'm going to die any minute. And <laughs> I was a very heavy smoker for twenty years, and I keep the third to twenty-five years, and I keep waiting for that to catch up with me. And I'm six foot six, and people who are at my height just we fall like trees. We just go boom. And so I keep thinking I'm going to die, and I just need to write as fast as. <laughs> I this is therapy. I, I just, uh, but seriously, I just think move on, move on, move on. I've got something else to, it's like, and I'm glad. I'm so glad now. I'm not sitting here with the monumental task of doing it's a sin series too. Yeah, and I mean, Luke, I just, I just had a pitch meeting just now. It's all brand new people, brand new characters. I just feel excited. Just feel more excited. That sort of ability, though, to to pick those moments is also reflective in how you sort of make gestures towards this is a historically relevant thing that you should know about, but we're moving through it because it's really more about the story rather than about, mm. you know, recasting London in the eighties. I, I always go back to that brief moment when Donald gets stood up at heaven and you know, yeah. you just see, you just see heaven in the background. If you want, yeah. you can Google it to see if that was a real club, but <laughs> we don't have a character coming like, welcome to heaven, the epicenter of gay life in the eighties and a very important yeah. landmark for club culture. You know, it's like, it just yes. keeps moving and keeps moving. Yeah, yeah, I very rarely do people walking into scenes. I, I think nothing happens there, does it? It's like it's it's. But I just think we're so television literate now, and you know, let's talk One Division. I'm just because everything is is all about One Division now. But um, I mean, I'm fascinated by people who go, "Oh, that first episode was so strange. I was so lost, and what was going on? I wasn't. I wasn't remotely lost. I sat there going." Right, she's in a sitcom, her husband's alive in the sitcom, her husband's dead, so she's created a sitcom in which she can live happily uh, and it's all fake and that'll run out in the end. And that, what I love about it is that turned out to be the story of the entire series. Yeah. Everyone had their theories saying Mephisto was involved or Doctor Strange was involved and stuff like that. And you said, the, what I loved about it was in the last episode, it's exactly the story they set out to tell in the first episode. And who didn't get that? Who's honestly <laughs> confused by the first episode? Really? Well, you weren't, were you, Andy? No. First First of all, Russell, this is this is a verbal binding contract that when Mephisto does appear in the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe, you will come on and break it down for us. All but, right, uh, but I I, I, I really want to uh, circle back to what you said about TV audiences uh, audiences literacy about television, which mm. I think is so crucial to the work that you do. And I think that you know, as as a writer and a creator, and you can shoot holes in this if if you like. But I feel like there are certain tools that are in your toolbox always: tools of, of pacing, of characterization, of tone, of humor. Uh, there's another one that I think isn't often as much discussed and is more difficult to manipulate, which is audience. Because audience is often the great unknown, and you can't write mm. for one person out there because you'll lose you'll lose the plot on many levels. But what I was dazzled by in watching your show was what I refer to, and you probably heard me say it, as a rope dope which I think you do twice and you do it brilliantly. Specifically, the first example was the Colin character. And I'm watching the show and I know I've seen a lot of TV shows. I know you've made a lot of TV shows, but I also know other little things maybe from the Wikipedia box I have in my pocket that the Colin character is from Wales. Uh, you hail from Wales. You live through some of this time. You are living this to this day. So in my mind, I'm starting to assume certain things. Well, Colin's safe. He's he's observing. He's not taking part in yeah. this. And I I'm taking in. I'm not I'm not some you know uh, text only new critic. I'm like, well, this might be a little bit of autobiography here. Oh, I then see. Then he has a seizure in the episode, 
And I'm right. thinking, oh my God, how horrible. What, is, what are the odds of him also having a different illness? <laughs> then he's in hospital and they're telling him that he has AIDS. And I'm like, this must be an interesting wrinkle where anyone hospitalized who was also homosexual was assumed to have AIDS and it's unfair. I am fighting and screaming against something that you are not hiding at all. You are telling us what's going on. And mm-hmm. I am in complete revolt and denial. And I, uh-huh. I, I think on some level, and your reactions may be making me think I've overthought this, but I wonder that when you're crafting this, if you are on some level aware that the audience might completely disagree with this decision or, or not want it or fight it so hard that it increases the, the tension the reaction and the relationship between viewer and show. That's interesting. The one thing I wouldn't ever think take into consideration is the, and I, and I am, I hope like any writer, I think operating on those levels of the audience, knowing what, what channel this is on, what it's for, right. what the context is, what the period is, what, what the tricks are, what the narrative tricks are, deaths of leading characters and so on and so forth. What I wouldn't ever do is factor my, anyone's knowledge of myself into that. Mm. And I do think that's true. I mean, you are, I would say, very television literate. I do think my husband always used to say, no one knows who writes anything on television. <laughs> it's like, when, I, when I met him, he said, and I, and, and standing in a nightclub at 10 to 2 in the morning, and he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a, I said, oh, I'm a writer. And he went, what do you mean you write? He said, <laughs> he had no concept to his dying day of like, what well, I used to come upstairs. And he never really knew what I did. Most people don't know or don't care who the writer is. I think we're in quite a rarefied sphere. I accept in our media world, right, okay. maybe anyone listening to this podcast has a heightened awareness of that, but most people don't. So I wouldn't factor myself into that. I wouldn't ever think, oh, I will be seen as the Welsh person. I put Welsh people in because we're not seen enough on television. When I was young, my father called us in from the street out playing uh, when a Welsh person appeared on television. I said, yeah. <laughs> said, no, it's really, come in, Margaret John's on Zcars, he said, um, which is a, a cop show called Zcars. And uh, still quite rare. You still don't see Welsh people on television enough. Um, so I wouldn't have done that. See, I see it completely differently. It's, it's like, I'm kind of, I love all the work you put into that. And I'm amazed. And if we do, and we should we do interviews like this before and after transmission. If you talk to me at Christmas before transmission, I was sitting there. My version of the Colin story was: How obvious is it that the sweet innocent person dies? Right. How obvious <laughs> is that? It's like I I kind of was wincing, dreading a completely obvious reaction to it. So I'm surprised that anyone's surprised. It's mm. like it's like, and and you know that's my there's a bigger plan at work there of showing. I've got a series of five episodes with four deaths in it. That's tough. When I sit here saying, I sit in this chair solving problems, that's the problem of the show, is making each death different and interesting and have a different emotional reaction, and yet they're all the same. I, I think so it may be the true thing here is not that, you know, uh, we were tricked or surprised, but it goes back to the point about falling in love with people within five minutes, that we are actually in open revolt against the show. We know we're watching a show that doesn't have a happy ending, you know? But the yeah. bargaining that I was doing with myself, my wife and I were doing on the couch, being like, well, well, maybe Richie makes it to the 90s and he gets antivirals and he becomes, you know, a, uh, a Larry Kramer-like figure who survived it and he's looking backwards. Yes. And yes, I, I was doing anything to try to, it, it's like a stage of grief. I was bargaining against the inevitable. Yes, your wife has made some terrible bargains. <laughs> in that time, but let's, let's not get into that now. <laughs> How long um, has this camera been on? <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, yes, and yes, I am aware of that. It's like, yes, I, I, I mean, if I'm making something to be seen 
And I watch a lot of stuff. I probably watch everything. It's like, I mean, I'm watching The Queen's Gambit at the moment going, hurry up! (laughs) (laughs) Even as I'm loving it, I am loving it, but Jesus Christ. (laughs) How much do those hotels cost? I mean, those sets. Anyway, so so I am getting, you know, those levels of, of, of stuff happening. And yes, and so I just I just take that for granted. I I, I pack that into it. it. It's like it's it's a lot of work. I, it, it it is a, Peter Hall's a great director. It's a lot of work for a director to unpack. It's like because well, he used to say you should you should talk to him. He's lovely actually. It's like there's no scene in it in which just one thing is happening. Yeah, stuff is dense. This doesn't always work. I've got to say I'm, I'm very aware of coming on a podcast. Going, oh, aren't I marvelous? Isn't this brilliant? It's like I did a series like this called Years and Years last year, which absolutely died a death. Everything we're talking about here just pushed people away. It was dense. Somehow that made it. It was fast. Somehow that made it closed. I just, I mean, who knows what works and what doesn't. And well, that also, really... that was one of the most traumatic things I've ever seen in my life. And was <laughs> I was unable to watch it. I told him yes. when I, when I watched it and he, I told him how much I liked it. And I was like, you should probably not watch this though. You know, I don't, I don't think you'll be able to handle it. That, that should be on the poster, really. Isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I did. And I watched it with this feeling of like vicarious, like, you know, if you've just driven past someone who crashed on the highway and part of you is sympathetic, but part of you is like there, but for the grace of what, like, I feel all like we these, slipped the all timeline. All these poster quotes are brilliant, really. It's like, I want your quotes on the poster. But, but I, I don't you know how probably, anyone watched You should probably not watch this. You should drive past it. It's like, <laughs> no, it's more like, watch this. I don't know how any of you people watched it last year. And my, my question that I have written down about years and years is, how did you make this last year? Was this in some way therapeutic for you? Because, oh my God. Was, that literally got commissioned on the night that Trump was elected. Literally. Are I've you been kidding talking me? About it for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, truly. I've been talking about it for a while. It's the only time anyone's ever said, the commissioner's ever said to me, what have you always wanted to write? And I went, oh, this. And then it came pouring out of me. I'd wanted to write it for like 20, 30 years. I just, I'd always wanted to write a marriage between the news, between what's happening in the world and drama. And then... On the night of President Trump's election, where I could, and early in the night, around about 10 o'clock at night, when I could, oh, I, honestly, I got a feeling of it going wrong. I just did. You know, everyone was like happy at the beginning. And I sent an email to the head of drama of the BBC saying, if he gets elected tomorrow, then I should start writing this. Uh, yes, he said in an email back. And then that's what happened. So I'd like to thank you all for getting me that commission. <laughs> by, plunging, by plunging the world into hell, you got me to make six hours of drama. Look, there, there are always losers and winners in any, <laughs> any event. Yeah. You're the one person who came out on the other side. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the finale. A couple of things jumped out. First, it's my favorite episode of TV of the year. And I thought oh wow, thank when you. I was watching it, I, I, I had the uh, feeling... <laughs> Of watching, you know, that I was seeing like an action set piece, especially in the hospital oh. ward when Valerie arrives and she's stalking between these rooms. You talk about your ability to pick these moments in these people's lives. And it strikes me after hearing you say that, that that's that moment for half a dozen people, you know, in that sort of yes. long scene of the dad, mom, Jill, the nurse and, and Richie. Yeah. Did you approach that with Peter? And decide. Let's have a different visual language for this moment than we have for because th- those those shots are extended, and it sort of clears out for Keely Hawes, and it's yeah, just yeah, like yeah. she is going to be the engine of this scene. 
what a performance. What a performance. She, she accepted I was wondering what role. you were going to do with her because I'm like, she's she's one of my favorite well, actresses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she, she accepted that part only having, when only the first four episodes were written, in fairness to her. Uh, and she's, you know, she's one of Britain's leading actors. And yeah. Um, yeah. The, the last episode wasn't written. I just kept saying, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you it'll be good. That's actually a good thing to do. It makes me work harder. It's like, and then I have to come back to this desk and think, oh my God, you've got to deliver on this. But actually, it's interesting because that's like, I mean, yes, that's the climax of the whole series. It's the, it's like, I was always heading towards that. That I heard that story about a mother and a father arriving on a ward to discover that their son not only had AIDS, but that he was gay and had AIDS and was dying all in one moment. I must have first heard that story in 1989, 1990, and then I heard it again. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's a story. It's, mm-hmm. it's, and from that, when I talked to you about my head being full of dialogue and, and stuff, I've been, that's been popping into my head ever since I find it quite confusing. I'm not confusing, quite fascinating after all these years to watch the actual version on screen because the version of my head has been playing for so long. They were all in different clothes. She was in a black coat and the camera was over here, not there. And, and she was a much smaller room. And so I, I have found it hard to, I actually find it hard to erase the version that's been playing in my head for, for 30 years. That's how long that's been there. And I love the version we've got. I'm not saying, you know, I'm enjoying this. Um, so the whole show is heading towards this. It is, it is no wonder it's well-written and works because to be honest, that's what I was here for. And then when I was pitching this to the channels, I was like sitting there going, and then the mother and father turn up all in the same moment. It was the show. And so, you know, I, and I literally sat here writing episode one, writing episode two, writing episode three, writing episode, and then you're getting directors and you're casting and stuff like that, heading towards that scene. It's like a reward. Sometimes, I mean, well, it didn't feel like a reward at the time. It felt, it felt terrifying. I can remember reaching that ad break as they walk into the room and then thinking, oh my God, now I've got to write it. I've been thinking about this for 30 years and now I actually have to write it. And, and I refuse to... I was rough refused to, I don't do any breakdowns. I don't, I don't do any synopses of episodes for anyone. I just refuse to do it. And so, and I remember sitting here thinking, do give yourself a synopsis, give yourself a guide rope to get through it. Give, right. It's, it's literally, all you have to do is get that right. Is literally write the order in which she thinks of everything. And that, that's my entire job. And that's, I remember sitting there thinking, write it down, give yourself like a breakdown, work it out on paper. Then you won't be so terrified. And then you'll have a guideline. And I just couldn't do it. I just, just my hand goes into, if I go to pick up a pen pen to do that, my hand goes into revolt. It goes, no, 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 don't. Because I think I have to, I have to act it out, to be honest. I have to sit here and feel it. It's like, I, you know, I kind of, the producer part of me is sitting here at the same time. I'm sitting here thinking, right, this is 15 pages. This is a 15 page scene. I know I'm, I'm not technically aware of what's going on that, and I know what's to come. I know there's awful barriers to be leaped in part three and part four. So there's huge hurdles to come. So I literally sit here going, I'm a great one for page length. I stick to page length. So absolutely. And I sit there going, right, you've got 15 pages to do this. And you can kind of hear the fear in my voice now. I'm kind of replicating the feeling. Of, <laughs> I'm getting like this, and my voice is going like this, and I'm talking at the vast because it's like I literally get myself into a terror over it. And then, and I probably walked around for two days not doing it, and then just said, "Right, you've got to do it now." And I probably wrote that in one day. It's 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 or two days maybe, but yeah. So, but I'd always been heading there. That's the mm-hmm. point. That's why the entire series was created. Everything before and everything after is just consequences. It's that one thing, the horror. I mean, I've lived in my head. I've imagined that moment. It's funny because that really happened to a friend of mine. Uh, It happened lots of times, but there's one specific example I can think of that really happened to a friend of mine, like 
Richie and Valerie, it did not end well. It did not end in hugs. And this is true, again, of a lot of families that, you know, there's a more traditional drama where they all end up hugging each other and sorry and happy. That didn't happen. And it often didn't happen. And um, the funny thing is, this happened to a friend of mine. I never asked what happened in real life. Hmm. Once the, the mother and father, I mean, we all heard about the consequence. I wasn't there and no one was there. They cleared everyone out and um, and we all heard about the consequences. I never said what exactly did they say and what orders did they say because I never wanted to know because I just wanted to write it. I just wanted mm-hmm. my own version of that. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Really, I should have, but I never wanted to know. Never. Yeah. There are some things I just don't ever want to know. There's a, I said this once before in like Doctor Who magazine. It's like, there's an episode of Star Trek called Darmok or something or Darmok. It's definitely one of those two. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of those two. It's like, look, Captain Picard meets um, an alien. He's trapped on a, on a planet with an alien who speaks only in metaphors. And I never want to see that episode because I've I've read that synopsis about 25 years ago and I've wondered what that dialogue is like ever since. And every so often I think, I wonder what happens in that episode. I wonder what that alien says and how Picard breaks that down of what it sounds like. And it's much more interesting to think about than to watch, probably. Sure. There's something so essential and so essential to making good television or screenwriting of any kind of what you're saying, which is that you need specificity to make something matter, to make it resonate, to make you connect to it. And, and we were speaking about that, about that in terms of how you decide where to put the stakes down in your scene. But reality can kill art, right? Like once it becomes definitively something, then it's nothing. And about mm. that balancing act that you're describing is so difficult but so it had to be emotionally true to you and you had to yes. find your own path there but if you had already known what happened it sucks the life and the possibility of yeah it. it's it's part of the reason why and i'm very lucky I've, I've got enough of a career and enough authority in my career to get away without doing breakdowns and stuff like that because um because i just find that so disappointing it's like i mean i can when I'm getting something commissioned or when I get, it's like I would sit, I just did it today. I sit on a Zoom. I used to sit in offices and I would tell them, I would sit down with them and I would tell them what's going to happen because I like that. And I can do that. It's you know, loud and tall and hands. And, but if it's all written down on a piece of paper, then it, it, I think it's kind of dead. It's inert. It's, yes. it's, yeah. it's, it's inert. It's, it's, dis, it's disappointing. And all, all you're doing is like transcribing. I find that very hard to, to, I'd never want to work like that. And I'm aware of how lucky I am. If anyone's a young writer listening to this, it's like there's, there's no way around it. You'll have to do your treatments. You'll have to do your synopses. You'll have to and your pitches. But I can't they're the worst. I, I love <laughs> hearing you say this because it is like this completely unnatural stutter step between, between head and heart, right? Like yes. you, you jam something in there. It is neither it is neither talking, which is alive, nor well, is it writing and finding things. It's just... It's true. And then I'm going to say WandaVision again. It's like, because I read that interview with the WandaVision team where they talked about how they came up with that line of, you know, what is love, if not grief persevering? And now right. I write in one line and the show wanted another. And then the assistant in the room came up with the word persevering, she said. And I said, hooray. That's, you know, that's... Yeah that's a very constructed piece of work where everyone knew exactly what was happening and they sought to find the right word. And that works. So everything works. Everything works if you do it well enough. Um, I'm just literally talking about the way I work. And I think I'm lucky that I can just, I'm free to kind of surf. I always feel like I'm surfing. I always think here comes the wave and I've just got to surf and stay above the water now. You've you've been very generous with your time, Russell. We don't want to keep you too long, but I did want to circle back if you have a little more, if you have an extra moment to something you you said at at the start, which was the challenge of, communicating to a young cast or a young crew or even potentially young audience what AIDS was in the 80s, what that meant, you know, that HIV was 
for a time a death sentence, you know, and yeah. and, and conveying that. And I I I wanted to to ask you specifically, how did you do that? Because this cast, and I feel like we've been remiss in not celebrating them more. Because well, in addition yeah. to making us fall in love with these characters, Absolutely. you've given us superstars. I mean, we lo- <laughs> I, I love yeah. everyone. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait to see them for the next 20, 30 years of their careers. Um, what was the energy like? What was the interaction like? How did well, they? Ex- what level of education did they need? It's extraordinary, uh, because, and, and something extraordinary did happen with this cast. We always do these interviews, because, oh, the cast all gone on like a happy family, and they really did on this one. Um, although, actually, most casts get along, I've got to say, because um, it's a laugh, this job. It's enormous fun. Um, but actually, I think something weaponized this cast in the all of us, me and the director and the producer and our casting director, Andy, Andy Pryor, is something I've spoken about in a different context, which is that we all wanted gay actors. We wanted every gay part to be played by a gay actor. And actually lots of the straight parts played by gay actors as well. And um, and that means, and, and I didn't anticipate this as part of the process, that means because you're not allowed to ask uh, someone's sexuality in an audition, and that's absolutely fair enough. That's the same employment laws that stop the head of a supermarket being prejudiced against lesbians on the tills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a great law. But it, so it means you have to open the door and sort of say, look, it's a gay show. Gay characters, if you want to come and talk to us about your sexuality and be open and join in with this, please come. So it, it's an open invitation as opposed to a drilling question or interrogation and that literally alters the tone and caliber of the people you get through the door you're not just getting gay actors you're getting out gay actors so they've already made a very big choice in life a very big choice as an act and still to this day that's an enormous choice so actually what we didn't dis and i didn't think that would have any bearing on the energy of the set, which I now think is very stupid of me and what we realized from the very first day of the read the, the read through day one was like amazing because actually, and what you're talking about, Andy, about education was like, my, my God, they got and educated themselves even before walking through the door. They'd all, they all have that extra responsibility. And uh, I'm not saying straight people would have done this, but, but maybe I'm saying it meant more to them. Maybe I am saying that. And so they, they it was lecturing from the start, from day one. And then we had, we also did have a week's, week's rehearsal, which is very rare in television, but very brilliant for this lot. And, um, and where, everything clicked they properly are mates for life that lot and i think it's i genuinely think it's visible on screen there's there's a, there's, a, there's an energy there's an animus there's there's something in there that says my god these and also they're brilliant yeah. that's that's the other thing is like they're also meeting each other on a level of brilliance as well and that doesn't always happen and um and you know you surround them with keely halls and you surround them with neil patrick harris and stephen fry and sean dooley so um it's it it really becomes an actor's piece. So um it could have backfired. I wish I wish I could have the hindsight to say, yes, I planned this all. I knew exactly what would happen the moment we had this casting policy, but it all accidentally fed into the thing. So and my God, now, you know, they get asked to do podcasts and they were doing HIV campaigns and it was HIV testing week over here. And you can roll them off into a debate about HIV now and then and they know their stuff yeah that's always been a problem in the past I remember it was mm. it was difficult on queerest folk and stuff like that because of course most journalists are always after a headline and journalists love tripping actors up and I remember doing the queerest folk interviews there was nothing journalists like more than testing them on the rights of the gays in the army and, and equal marriage and ages of consent and all that stuff and you know not necessarily the job of a cast to know that stuff and actually to see this law weaponizing themselves mm. and politicizing themselves and liking being in the debate was just miraculous, actually. I love them. I properly love that bunch. 
Russell, you, you you alluded at the beginning that you spent some time living out here in LA and 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 working on American projects. Um, we do something that's probably a fault on this podcast where we sometimes look at people's CVs and then we assume things about what it means because it all looks perfectly <laughs> curated in hindsight. But yeah. Chris and I have discussed, and maybe we even said it on the podcast you heard, that your career as it is now just seems unique. It does not seem like an American TV career because it, it's almost like you're a, a gentleman artisan where you have worked on these big projects and rehabilitated them. You spent years on Doctor Who. You created a, a franchise that is, you know, currently being potentially rebooted again in Queer as Folk. But then, you know, in, in the last few years, you've done Very English Scandal and, and Tofu and, and years and years. And you have these ideas and you accomplish them. You make these shows and then you go back to this beautiful room with books and you think about, think about <laughs> the next one. Is your perch unique to you and where you are? Or is there something fundamentally different still about how UK creators approach their work and the sort of industry churn that we see here in the US? Mm, it's hard to talk about my uniqueness. I mean, every writer's <laughs> unique. Um, of course I'm unique. But um, I, I'm the only one I know that likes moving on so fast. I kind of wish I had, at the same time, I wish I had a long runner. I mean, there's a writer over here I love called Sally Wainwright, who does Happy Valley and Last yeah. Tango in Halifax. And sometimes I look at her and I, you know, everyone's just waiting for the next, and she goes off and does, she does all sorts of different things, but then everyone's waiting for the next Happy Valley. Everyone's waiting for Last Tango in Halifax to come back. And I think that must be nice. I kind of envy thinking, I do genuinely envy that thinking, God, what a lovely thing to have a bunch of characters that people love that you can go back to. And I, whereas, but I kind of like the terror, I think, of like, like just now, 20 minutes ago, I was pitching a new show, which is not what anyone's expecting me to write. And literally the, the, the commissioner was going, you want to write that? Really? <laughs> <laughs> which I wasn't quite expecting. I was like, oh, well, I was expecting a yes. But <laughs> so I was like, going, yeah, I really want to write that. I can't go into it now, but it's not what you'd expect someone who's just written it's a syndicate, right? Anyway, um, I don't know. I can't answer that, Andy. Um, uh, I, I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing. I think I would have carved this out wherever I was. Um, I mean, I did Cucubo over here. That was originally with Showtime. Cucubo was going to be... But then they would have run. Then they would have asked for five years, wouldn't they? Six years. Well, right? Showtime. Seven, seven yeah. nine yeah. years. I mean, Shameless <laughs> is still going. My yeah, God. Shameless is going. Yes, yes, yes. Um... So that said, when you visit of, your friend on his private island, I'm sure it looks... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Better, it's a solid better. gold yacht. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's... That's what I'm glad about. I'm glad. I think I'm one of the few people I can think of, I'm the only person I can think of who's done all this without doing a cop show. Because they are the meat and potatoes of all that kind of stuff. But you're I'm, happy that you didn't. I'm very happy. Yes, I'm very happy with... I'm an amazingly non-violent writer. Mm -hmm. And all television is violent, really, somehow, somewhere. Almost every hour of television has a fight. The confrontation has a fight. It's a punch, at the very least, if not a gun. And um, and I'm genuinely... I did all those... I did all those 60 episodes of Doctor Who, and the Doctor only punched up someone once, and that was when... And that was, that was a real point to that, actually. Hmm. Um, that actually was just at the end of his tether and, and had to punch someone. Even then, I should have written that better. Um... How do we get onto this? So I'm just strangely proud of that. And I'm probably the only person who's aware of it. You know, it's like no one gets beaten up and it's a sin. It's the only 80s drama I've ever seen in which someone isn't beaten up. And, and my favourite thing, and it's, I think my favourite thing in the whole of It's a Sin is where he goes home to the Isle of Wight and meets that old school friend. And you're Martin. waiting for that fight, and, yeah. Well, you, 
that should end in sex or violence, right? Shouldn't it? And it ends in ballet, and and I'm properly <laughs> proud of that. In the in the, I'm aware when you know when you were saying I'm aware of it. I'm aware of how these things are working. I'm very aware of the audience. There, you can that. That's where you can literally see me playing with the audience, and I think you're dying for them to have sex, and you're waiting for Martin to punch him. Or both. You could literally have both those things right. happen in the scene. And I love the fact that neither, and I don't just avoid something, I reach something better and completely unexpected. So yeah, that that's a very, yes, it is a game. With, well, it's more than a game. The game's light. Um, you know, it's, it's. I really wanted to say everything that I said in that sequence, but it's, it's a very self-aware thing. I think that's why I always, my writing fitted Doctor Who so well, because there was no show in the world that's so aware of the fourth wall as Doctor Who. It's like, you know, the moments in Doctor Who, they might as well turn to the camera and say, I told you so. I knew this was going to blow up. It's like that. And I think, I think, I think when I'm criticizing myself, I think there's almost that element in all my writing that it's very fourth wall aware. And sometimes, sometimes I reach good stuff by fighting that. Uh, by being aware of that and saying, no, go, go back, go deeper. As Stephen King always says, go, when you don't know what to write, dig deep. But there is, you know, we're talking about a show which has West End musicals and Daleks and, and monologues in it. You know, I'm, I'm, I love writing a monologue. I'm completely unafraid of a monologue, um, which has a staginess to it. So I'm always very aware of that in my work. It's it's a battle. Sometimes I think that's good. Sometimes I think that's bad. And I think if you just, that's actually, I think that's a good battle to be having. Keep having that battle and maybe it'll, well, it is leading me to interesting things. How do we end up here? <laughs> no, this is exactly right. I, I, I think because we were so eager to talk to you, we were so grateful for the time you've given us, not only because It's a Sin is masterful and beautiful and we're so grateful for it, Best show of the year, as you said, though, it is only March, so we'll revisit this in December. But <laughs> fight is on. <laughs> but beyond that, I, I just think as people, you know, on this podcast, we, we we talk about a lot of TV, we process it, we discuss it in the industry, and I just think we are in a better place if there are more stories that don't choose sex or violence, they choose ballet. There's a third, there is a third choice, and I think that the more TV the, that gives the us The challenge that, is for them to do that on True Detective, if they ever bring that back. <laughs> it would be better. <laughs> It would be an improvement. Maybe I watched too much Glee. There is that. Okay. Like, <laughs> we, we, we we'll never know the full answer. <laughs> Russell, thank you so much for joining us. You've thank been so you. generous with your time and it's been amazing. Really lovely to talk and I hope I can come out there one day and say hello properly. It's been, we it's would been love so that. Kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> 